The Gospel reading is from Matthew. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. We talk about in-town as a place, a safe place to explore and to find and to grow in faith. And uh, that passage doesn't sound very safe, does it? It sounds very foreboding, uh, sounds very intimidating, what you expect to hear in church. Um, So let's see what we can do with this passage. Um, We have actually been talking about sin, the seven deadly ones, as a matter of fact, and Uh, This morning, we get to lust, Um, and we've been approaching this topic not just to kind of reiterate, hey, cut that out. All of those things that you're doing out there that seem like a lot of fun, stop it, and life will be so much better, but it wouldn't be. It would make my job a lot easier if I could just kind of say, well, here's the list of things that you are to do no more, and here's the list of things that you should do, but our lives wouldn't be markably better, even if we may be kind of saluted by our particular religious community for living a more moral, straight life. It might not, in fact, draw us any closer to God. But we're using the lens of the seven deadly sins as diagnostic tools to determine our spiritual health, to kind of ask at a CAT scan or MRI level. How are we doing? Not just how are we behaving. And this morning, as I said, we come to lust, but don't be scared because what happens here stays here. That doesn't sound very reassuring, does it? In fact, it sounds a little bit creepy coming from a pastor or as people in the community call me, a priest. Outside of a few professional and intimate context, this sort of idea isn't healthy, that what goes on here stays here, because it can be the justification of sort of a boys' club mentality. It can justify locker room talk. It can justify, in fact, as it has for decades, cover-up in politics and in the church as well. But this idea does have some, some kind of compelling 
facet to it because it was one of the biggest hits in advertising in the early 2000s. What happens here stays here. Anyone know where this came from or who came up with this idea? Yeah, Las Vegas, the self-proclaimed sin city. And it worked so well that they resurrected it last year, 2018, right in the middle of the Me Too movement. And it implies that it's a good thing to have part of your life sort of walled off from the rest of your life, from those that know you, and from the norms of social, sexual behavior. Come to Las Vegas and get away from this prudish culture that you live in. Leave your inhibitions at home because no one here is looking, and if they are, they're not going to tell anyone else because they're doing the same things that you're doing. Well, one of my favorite uh, skeptics to this idea is the great uh, theologian, Mr. Spock from Star Trek, and he is the half-human, half-Vulcan who's not so sure that our passions are a reliable roadmap to fulfillment, to happiness. And he says, having is not so pleasing a thing as wanting. This is not logical, but it's often true. Thank you, Meg. You're welcome to laugh at any of my goofy, silly comments or cultural, you know, connections. You might have to be older than 40 to get them, but that's okay. This is a profound commentary on lust and on sex, especially of the illicit kind, because illicit sex is the thing that is most promising and most alluring and then most disappointing. Some of you are sitting here, and it's not a safe place to talk about sex and lust. That is the church. Besides the scandals and the cover-ups that I mentioned, maybe you've been hurt or you've been shamed by a particular church community, maybe shunned by the decisions that you've made. You've been made to feel unacceptable because of your sexual history. And I just want to reassure you that none of this has anything to do with Jesus. And I want to apologize to you if you felt hurt and shamed and shunned. Because what Jesus is doing here is not talking about lust simply to correct, to curtail, to change your behavior, but as an invitation to grace so that whatever He is calling you to, that that is where you want to walk, not out of compulsion, but out of a desire to live a more full and a more whole life and a life that's more reflective of the goodness and the holiness of God. And to do this, I think we first have to identify some of those functional operational beliefs that we have that are unexpected, that kind of run as code in the back of our minds, that it's just how we operate. Our unexamined sort of societal dogma about sex and about lust. And I think we, there's a lot of them, but we could probably group them in three areas, three distortions. And one would be sex as compulsory. That is, sex is like oxygen. It's like food. You've got to have it or your life just isn't complete. The novelist Meg Wolitzer writes about a wife that she was interviewing for a story in the New York Times. And this wife was preparing to pay a prostitute to have sex with her husband because she 
was simply no longer interested in sex. And what Meg Wolitzer was blown away by, what she says she was staggered by, is not the fact that she would do that, not the unfaithfulness part, but the fact that this woman was willing to close down her sexual life, that that just blew her mind. How could anyone choose that? How could anyone live that way? And she says, I think the culture is still weirdly prurient about the idea of other people not having sex because we're all post-Freudians. It's as if we still believe that sex equals strength. Sex equals health and life, and so therefore not having sex equals weakness and illness and death. Maybe the first distortion is sex as compulsory. It has to happen or we can't be happy, we can't be full humans. And then secondly, something, sex is something that's purely carnal, that is physical, it's purely transactional, that we attempt to disconnect it from the rest of our lives. Again, this idea that we can wall off parts of who we are behind something, and it doesn't affect the rest of us. That sex is just about our neurotransmitters firing in a certain way, and if we can get that to happen, then we are okay. The Boston Globe a number of years ago interviewed some college students on the so-called hookup culture, and they found this particularly wise college-age girl, and she talked about this hookup culture, moving from sexual experience to sexual experience, and said, you feel hollow and empty the next day, hoping the guy will call or text, knowing he isn't going to, and then pretending to yourself and to your friends that it doesn't matter and that you don't care. It's no secret that these neurotransmitters can be triggered without a partner, and yet people are still constantly looking for other humans to connect with in that way, even at great cost to themselves. And even while trying to avoid the human context context and contact that we associate with that sexual event, and we're trying to seed those two things from one another. Sex, one of the distortions is sex is compulsory, or sex that is purely carnal or physical. These are all C's, creative, right? Uh, and then sex as uh, contortion, that is, it's deformative. It's deformative of our humanity. And it's the same result as number two, but it works in reverse. That here, we're expecting not too little of our sexual partner that we just disconnect, but we're expecting far too much. We ask our sexual partner, our partners, to shoulder our deepest desires. Ernst Becker wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning Denial of Death, and he says, if your partner is your all, in quotes, then any shortcoming in them becomes a major threat to you. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness, to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Sex 
as any of us are told and maybe experienced, can be transcendent, but not always and never like what he's talking about. It may be transcendent, but it's not the answer to your life's quest. And yet we keep trying, like this girl in the Boston Globe, and then we inevitably realize that we've set ourselves up to be hurt. We've entered into this transactional relationship when what we want is so much more deep, and that this person that we now find ourselves married to is not the answer to our life's quest, no matter how good at sex they might be. We contort them, we deform them, and we deform and contort ourselves in an attempt to control them. Please give me what I need. I've invested so much in you, and you better live up to this, or we leave them. Well, these distortions are ancient. They don't just operate in our culture, and so the Bible addresses these things. Jesus addresses these things, and He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And notice he's not defining sexual desire as lust. He doesn't say don't look at another person and admire their beauty. Try not to notice. Instead, what he's saying is do not gaze, do not meditate, do not seek to possess someone when you can't be a part of them physically, when you can't sort of have them. And this idea of seeking to possess someone is something that connects lust with the other deadly sins that we've talked about, that through envy, through greed, through anger, we are seeking to possess something and control something outside of us. And lust isn't limited just to inordinate sexual desire. It can be like the sad character in the Iggy Pop song you might know from the Norwegian cruise lines that use it, probably the worst adaptation for a song ever. It's lust for life. And the title really fits, Come on this Cruise Line, because it's so exciting to be on this cruise line and see these beautiful sights and slide down this slide. You have a lust for life, so buy this cruise. And that's not what he's talking about. He's actually undermining that idea, and he has a sad character that is basically going through life saying, I want everything. I want sensuality. I want feeling. I want festivities. I want sex, but never love. Don't give me that. And this disordered, sort of chaotic life is called a lust for life. So don't go on a cruise if what you're looking for is much more foundational. If you're looking for redemption, not even Norwegian cruise lines will provide that. Lust, you see, isn't the root of objectification, but lust is the result of objectification. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Lust presumes that we can have something, that we can possess it, that we have the right to use something, and that presumption is based upon something prior. It's based upon not properly seeing our world, not properly seeing other humans, and in fact, not properly seeing ourselves. When we live within an objectified, a commodified world where everything is just one transaction away, we can buy it, we can purchase it, we can have it, 
when it's stripped and denuded of the presence of God, that is what gives rise to lust. Lust is sort of the symptom. It is not the disease. The disease first is objectifying another human being in such a way that we believe that they are there for our personal gratification, and we use them. And this is, in fact, a perverted world. We think of perverts as those people that kind of live on the edges and wear dark trench coats and so forth. In other words, they're not us. We want to offload them to a different part of this dark underworld. But what does pervert or perverted mean? It's used here or used by us to describe sexual deviancy, but it means to belittle. It means to distort. It means to dehumanize. And calling someone a pervert, you're you're saying that they are constantly and obsessively dehumanizing other people, that they are constantly underestimating another person. But see, we pervert other people, right? Whether we're involved in any sort of like sexual practice that would be considered deviant, we can pervert people when we minimize them, even with language. When we, as men, look at another woman or look at a woman and say that woman is hot, that is a perversion of that person and the image of God that exists in that woman because we are one-dimensionalizing them. When we look at any other human and choose one word to describe the whole of their human existence, it is a perversion, whether it's hot or ugly, whether we call someone a liberal or conservative or any label that we use by which we seek to control our understanding and mark them in a one-dimensional way. It's a perversion of the image of God. It's a belittling of the image of God that exists in that other person. And to call someone hot is just to make them an object of visual craving. It's to make them something that I can consume. We're objectifying to control or to possess. And it's an inability or a refusal to see the imago Dei the image of God that exists in that person, to see their divinity. And this is why Jesus, I think, says elsewhere that unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Because how we treat the least person, in quotes, in our mind, is how we treat God. It's how we think of God. Because they bear God's divine image. And so when we pervert them, we belittle them, we treat them, as objects. We do that to God. So to lust after a person is to dim the image of God in their lives. It's to, in fact, dim God Himself. And to make someone less than they are, to make God less, we have a term for that, right? It's called idolatry. Now, that's the stick, that's the warning, as it were, Don't do this because it diminishes other people and diminishes God, but there's also a carrot because this diminishes us. And so if you don't have an altruistic bone in your body and you're listening just for how does this affect me, how does this change me, what do I need to see, this deforms you, this activity of lust and objectification. 
And this is why Jesus takes this Old Testament command and He turns it up to 11. It's not because He wants to be more prudish or puritanical. When you read the Gospels, there's no way you could get that picture of Jesus. But because He's protective of you, He's protective of the image of God that exists in all of God's children. And He is saying, do not lust because I love you, because you are His beloved, because you are imaginatively made. You are created in God's image. So don't be a willing participant in your own demise, in your own distortion. That's what lust is doing. When we have these inordinate desires that we pursue, we are pursuing actually not what leads to gratification, but what leads to a deformation of our own souls. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but then loses his soul? In other words, you can have everything that you lust for, and upon arriving, it will not answer your heart's deepest desires. It will not fulfill you. You will be less happy. You will be less human. You will be simply a desiring thing. Not someone who is addicted, but an addict. You see, we have that label that it one-dimensionalizes that person, and that's what we are becoming. When we cannot rein in, we refuse to rein in our inordinate desire, our expectations that an object can give us what we're really looking for. We become simply wanting things. And Jesus connects sex here with marriage because sex is an integrative act. Even this 19-year-old quoted in the, in the Globe knows that, that sex without commitment, sex without boundaries is saying, I want to use you. I want to gratify myself using your body, but I want to keep my options open. You see, that's an assertion of self. It's an assertion that says, my personal gratification is more important than your well-being. And I'm unwilling to put any sort of curbs on my behavior in order to make you happy, in order to give you life. It's the commodification, the objectification of someone that we are exchanging very intimate parts of our body with. What Jesus is saying is that sex is meant to be this extravagant, transcendent expression of something that already exists. It's meant to be an expression of this prior commitment that has been made. And friends, this is not even really necessarily a Christian argument. This is something that people that have no connection with the church argue in their own life. Tiger Woods, for example. I don't know that he has any religious expression or commitment, but when he was caught in adultery and he had to face the music, he did so not with perfect candor, but a whole lot more than we see from most athletes and politicians and so forth, people that get caught, pastors that get caught. And he says, I ran straight through the boundaries that a married couple should live by. I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. 
I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I was wrong. I was foolish. I don't get to play by different rules. The same boundaries that apply to everyone apply to me. I wish we could just put that in someone's, everyone's inbox that might be accused of anything uh, in terms of sexual indecency because this, why not say that? Just own up to it. And what he recognizes here, even outside of a Christian context, is that <clears throat> adultery isn't a violation of just some arbitrary set of rules, but of sex itself, of relationship itself. It's a violation of integrity because it violates the integration of human persons. The boundaries you see don't exist for themselves. And any of us can pervert any boundary, any rule, any command in order to think of ourselves as more morally upright than our neighbor, which is how Jesus' listeners were using it. And I want to connect it to this, and then we'll be done. Like most of Jesus' other teaching, we often read this because we inhabit a culture that has sort of given us this lens through which to read the Bible, but this is not a correction to those outside the church. Jesus is not speaking as if to say, way to go, church people, you live differently than all of those bad people out there. But in fact, it's quite the reverse. It's not a correction to secular people who presumably have no boundaries, but it's first of all to religious people who use the boundaries to justify themselves. That's what Jesus' readers were doing. You see, we can obey the rules. We can stay married if we're married and yet not be any closer to the goal of what Jesus is actually identifying for us to pursue. We can still use marriage. We can still use sex to answer the questions of, am I something? Am I somebody? Am I righteous? Am I truly loved? And this is why Jesus talks about himself as the bridegroom because he talks about himself as someone that is not trying to objectify, commodify you. He's not trying to possess you, but to give himself to you. He's treating you as a whole person. And in that way, he makes you more whole, more beautiful, more integrated, and that's what conversion is meant to look like. It is meant to look like you becoming more human and more integrated. That he is actually what the ideal of marriage is pointing to. And he comes into this marriage saying, my life for yours. He comes saying, let me give you over time that which you think sex is going to give you. That's what, we, what you think lust is pointing to because God says, I choose you. I want to be with you. I want to sacrifice myself for you because I find you radiant and lovely, and you are somebody to me. You are beautiful. And so he signs up to be the bridegroom for all of us here. Let's pray.
Father, wherever we are coming from, whatever beliefs we might have about sex and sexuality and how that is to function in human existence and whether we come from a church world that has certain very high boundaries that are protected even if not followed, or whether we come from outside and are wondering why the church has all of these strange rules, I pray that we would be able to peer through and to see you, to see you inviting us into a vital relationship through which we can become whole, through which we can learn to love others and not to possess them. Lord, we pray that we would come and be fed at this table, that you would give us all that you have. In Jesus' name, amen.